Good morning. If you'll take a look at your bulletin there, you'll see that I'm not Randy Boldinghouse. And uh, I'm not even filling in for Randy Boldinghouse. I'm filling in for the fill-in. The guy who was filling in couldn't be here. And if this is your first time at Windsor Road, is probably indicative of the kind of luck you've had. <laughs> I, I just want to say right off, I'm a no-nonsense kind of guy in spite of my levity. I, I've come in here for two services, and this stand has been down there, and I've wanted it up here, and during prayer I've prayed that it would, and when I opened my eyes, it was here. When, um, when I was eight years old, out of the blue, my parents decided that we were all going to start going to church. We'd never gone before, and I had no interest in going. I went to VBS, that was a hoot. But uh, going to church, no. And it ruined my Sunday. And uh, what I came to understand about worship in those days was that it was mandatory. I didn't have a choice. It was very long. Do you ever sit there as a child and say, I'm just going to watch the arms on the clock move? I'm going to tell you something. They don't move when you're looking at them. They only move if you look away. It was long. And the third thing I remember about it was, well, it took place in a white frame building in Farmer City. That's where worship was. So if you wanted to avoid it, you stayed away from there. But my parents made me go. But Tim told all about his childhood last week. I've got, I've, I've got the right. <laughs> when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, and they engaged in conversation for reasons that are very obvious, she diverted the conversation away from her own sordid past and asked a theological question. Where should worship take place? You see, the Samaritans had set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, rival to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus told her in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. A lot of years ago, 50, that's a lot especially those of you who are younger, but to me, not so much anymore. I was reading through uh, the Bible as a teenager, and I came across what became one of my favorite, all-time favorite Old Testament passage, the experience of Isaiah when he went up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. And this is what he wrote. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And they cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who spoke. And the temple was filled with smoke. And I cried out, Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a coal that it had taken with tongs from off the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, this has touched your lips, your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And then I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. Isaiah prophesied in what scholars refer to as a kind of a pivotal point in, in their Jewish history. It was the turning from the law of Moses towards the, the uh, messianic kingdom of the coming Christ. And, and Isaiah was called to a pretty unpleasant job. He was supposed to take the message of God's impending wrath to an unrepentant people. And uniquely, we don't really, for all the length of the book of Isaiah, we just don't know much about the man himself. We know that that he prophesied around Jerusalem, that he enjoyed ready access to kings, But everything else we know about him is legend. And and probably the most significant legend is that about his demise. It's said, according to legend, at age 90, his enemies placed him in a hollowed-out carob tree, and then they sawed it in two. In fact, Hebrews 10, 37, sort of refers to that event. You can read it. What we see here is a man in deep worship. Uh, and, and what we learn about worship here is what makes this a sermon. Um, it's not nearly so atypical as we might first think it is. The elements that are seen here could and probably should be common to all of us who worship the living God. And I'm going to tell you what those elements are. These are the four points. I told the first service, you know, in uh, Homiletics 101, you know, they tell you, when you write your first sermon, uh, tell the people what you're going to tell them. That's the introduction. Then tell them that's the body, and then remind them that you told them. That's That's the conclusion. And you know what? That sounds corny, but boy, does that work. Here's what's coming. Here's what's coming. 
an awareness of God's presence, a consciousness of our sinful nature, um, an acceptance of his cleansing authority, and an invitation to enter his service. That's spiritual worship. This passage, if it's nothing else, it's a reminder that there is a greater reality. There there is a reality that's far beyond that which we conceive of or perceive through the normal senses. It's characterized by its invisibility to the normal man, or as Paul says, to the natural man, sometimes translated carnal man. It's a realm of absolutes like uh, eternality, a decisive truth, perfection, and pure joy. Of such a kingdom, we who were created first in the image of God and then later recreated in the image of Christ have been designed to inhabit. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for, but beyond that, it's being certain of what we do not see. There exists that which is only spiritually perceived. And therein is the reason why we should expect to have the same kind of encounter with God that Isaiah had. If you, if you take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, Paul writes, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are a matter of spiritual discernment. Point one. What we have here is a spiritual perception. And this spiritual perception that Isaiah has unveils, if you would, ultimate reality. Spiritual reality, as in fact it is. The curtain drawn aside and Isaiah clearly seeing the one whom he worships. What did he see? Take a look. Isaiah is able to perceive that this God is indeed present in this temple. He's on his throne. He's among the seraphim. He's in his glory. He's receiving the acclaim of the, of the seraphim, and he's receiving the worshipful esteem of his people. But the most overwhelming aspect of all is that his absolute and unparalleled holiness dominates the scene and it convicts Isaiah of unholiness. See, here's what what, what God did. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea into the desert, he gave them the the, the tabernacle, the portable portable temple, if you would. And uh, later on, uh, David conceived of a house 
a permanent structure. And ultimately, his son Solomon was allowed to build that house. And in the minds of the Jewish people and in the minds of God, this was, in fact, the meeting place between heaven and earth. It was the point where people could go and find where God exists on earth. We've seen a man, we've seen a man go there with that in mind, and this is what he experienced. Well, second observation. Note the distress of Isaiah here. Uh, his reaction bespeaks hopelessness. Uh, Alas, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost. Some say this might even be interpreted. I may not survive this experience. That was the degree of distress he's facing here. Uh, It's almost like resignation uh, to destruction. And, And you know, that seems a little odd to us, I know, because we live on this side of the cross. See, see what... uh, 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 what, what, we don't under, what we don't understand here is that Isaiah had no firsthand understanding about how what God would choose to deal with inherent unholiness. You know, by that I mean the, our personal and persistent sin. He, he didn't know what God would do about that. He, he knew it was there. Um, it's a dreadful... What am I looking at? Uh, Hebrews 10.31. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's probably all he had. That's probably all he took with him into the presence of the Lord that day. It's where he found himself. Now, I think there's two lessons to learn from his reaction. Uh, uh, First is his confession, which is in two parts. His first confession is of being of unclean lips. Why didn't he wash his face before he went? Why didn't he get some mouthwash? Yeah, now this is, uh, you know, uh, that, that's, uh, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, Jesus explains it pretty plainly in, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, 34 to 37. He says, you brood of vipers, talking to the Pharisees here, not tactfully either, I might add. Uh, How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actually, what Jesus said was, Ectu paracelmatos teis cardias thestamo lale. I don't speak in tongues. That was Koine Greek. That's what he said. And and the point of that is, out of the abundance of the heart, Well, the abundance of the heart finds expression. We ultimately say what's in our hearts. You understand the lips here, they're the mechanism. They're the mechanism by which we reveal what's inside us. Uh, The truth of our hearts, you see, laid bare in our speech. Now, see... You could follow me around and maybe weeks on end, and I would know that you were checking me out. And so I might be able to refrain from saying anything that would be damaging to my reputation for a while. 
But sooner or later, I would say something, and you would say, what an unchristian thing for Virgil to say. Where did it come from? And you know where it comes from. You know where it comes from. What Isaiah is saying here is that, uh, that dirty words don't equal dirty lips. What, what, what he's saying is that uh, his speech has betrayed what lays hidden within him. He, he basically says, I know myself from, from my own speech. I know about, about my lusts and my envies and my hatreds, etc. You can't keep it bottled up. It, you know, it just uh, it comes out. In other words, the lips are made unclean by what passes over them from the inside. Matthew fifteen eleven, uh, Jesus called the crowd to him. He said, uh, uh, "Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth—that's what makes him unclean." Well. Second observation here we might, might look at from, from Isaiah's uh, reaction here is his confession of his dwelling among people like us. You know, uh, I, I'm not only an unclean person, but everybody I associate with is too. Now, <clears throat> see, he doesn't do what we are so prone to do. See, see, what we're prone to do with this is to offer up some disclaimers at this point. Let me remind you what some of those, compl- you know, uh, how about this one? You know, I'm really not so bad. Well, I guess it's not a badness scale to begin with, so I mean, that may not be, be too good. Uh, I may not be perfect, but I, I do better than a lot of people. I mean, do, it's not a doing better scale either, you understand? Or, uh, um, I guess maybe, maybe uh, uh, one of my favorites is um, I strive to do my best. Is the striving the equal to the succeeding? No. It's nice to be around people who are really trying, I'll admit that. But that doesn't get you there either. See, those are the kind of disclaimers that we like to throw out. A person told me one time about his neighbor who was a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. He said, he'd do anything for you. Whenever you're in trouble, he is always there. He's the first one you could call on. You could always count on him. However, he never went to church. But if God's going to let anybody into heaven, he's going to have to let that guy in. you think our reasoning sounds like that? Let me tell you what Isaiah said. And his reasoning is nothing like that. Um, Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Filthy rags. There's an unpleasant metaphor 
comparing the best I have to offer in God's view, filthy rags. It's a lot worse than you think, though. It's a lot worse. Some scholars say that the filthy rags that he's referring to here is the bandages that would have been unwrapped from an infected womb, encrusted with putrid blood and pus, and and accompanied by a great stench. It was probably the most disgusting thing that Isaiah could think of, and he wanted to tell you that our personal righteousness stinks in the sight of God. And that's on our good behavior days. That's on our best efforts. That's when we're striving. That's when we're not so bad as everybody else. Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, "Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven's perfect." Remember the first funeral I ever performed. Uh, 16-year-old girl. Mother lived in Colorado, and her father and mother were divorced. She'd come out here to visit her, her father. Driving from D-Land to Farmer City, fiddling with a cassette tape. Or as a while ago, maybe it was an 8-track. I hope it was a cassette. At any rate, she hit the only tree between D-Land and Farmer City. and They called me if I'd do the funeral. Seems like the local minister had left the day before on vacation, hadn't even got to where he was going. Nobody knew how to get in touch with him. We didn't have cell phones, you know. So would you do the service? I said, oh, yeah, I've never done one before, but how hard can it be? Um, well, it turned out to be pretty hard because I couldn't find anything out about her. You know, a good sermon book says you must personalize the message. And you know what I mean. If you've attended a funeral, you know that the guy doing the preaching talks like he has some first, at least has least met the person, has some firsthand knowledge, you know, can tell you some, you know, share some jokes about some things he's said or done in his life, you know, that, that, that type of stuff. You know, and I, I, I need something, and I, I couldn't get anything. And I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't find out what was the most significant thing I wanted to know? Was this person a believer? Was she saved? Could I stand? You know, when I do a, a funeral, it's really nice if you can assure the people that the deceased is with the Lord. Because when you can't, you've got a different kind of sermon to do. Those are the easy ones, though. Well, finally, one of the elders' wives came up to me and said, Well, I, I, I know the girl. Now, I don't know how many elders' wives are in here, but I just let me warn you, you know, People expect things from you, so don't make stupid statements. Because I, for one, never forget them. This woman said to me, she said, I said, was she, was she a Christian? And this woman said, well, if she wasn't, she was the next thing to it. I couldn't use it. You get the point here. It's not about personal, it's not about how hard you try. I don't want to beat this to death. But, but we live in a culture today where, where, where a lot of people think that everybody should just go, get into heaven on the basis of, you know, doing their best or, or whatever. Well, let's, uh, let, let's, uh, let's go on. Uh, third component of spiritual worship here is simply this, God took pity. 
God heard the confession of Isaiah, and he took pity. Uh, the glowing ember from the fire, from the altar. Uh, we realize this is symbolic, this, 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 uh, this, this glowing ember symbolizing the perfection of God applied to his lips, uh, rendering him purged of his sins. In fact, John the Baptist would preach uh, almost a thousand years later. He says, I, I, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come who's more powerful than I am, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The one whom God purifies, you see, is holy. But the possibility of redemption only emerges when we've given up on all hope of our self-delivery. You know, you might read through the Sermon on the Mount if you were a new believer. You know, you're just, uh, just getting into the church. You might read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you might come to the conclusion that you're toast. See, see, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is how virtually impossible it is to produce righteousness from the law, from, 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 from outwardly doing, see, making myself obey the law when my heart wants to disobey the law. See, see, see Jesus says, even though you haven't committed adultery, you're adulterer in the heart, and even though you haven't killed somebody, your hatred makes you a murderer. And you're also a liar, otherwise you wouldn't have to swear by something. You know, all these things are very convicting. And, uh, uh, you, you, you know, but this might lead you in the right direction once you come to that conclusion. Once you understand it's not what you can do, but what needs to be done on your behalf, that's the real issue. Jesus frustrated his apostles almost beyond belief one day when he told them, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven. You know, and you know, you know what they said? Um, 1925, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished. This is beyond belief kind of astonishment. And then they asked, who in the world is ever going to be saved under those conditions? Because, you see, they lived in a culture that taught that, that God rewarded fidelity in a very material and visible way. And, and people who were rich and had accumulated their rich honestly were considered to be the, the most favored by God. And so their saying is, you know, here we are, you know, hard-working stiffs, whom God hasn't smiled on a great deal with wealth, and not even the rich man that's going to get in. So all of our value systems is now shot. Who in the world is going to be saved? And so Jesus answers the question in 1926. First he looked at them. I think this is always interesting when Jesus looks at people. You know, when I look at people, it usually means I can't believe you asked that. It, it usually means, have you been not paying attention at all? Uh, so he looks at them. It's a for crying out loud kind of look, you know. 
With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, even the salvation of the likes of you and I. That's, that's what this says. Believe me, I'm not perfect. You don't have to hang around with me very long to pick up on that. The good news is, God can do all... Th- oh, stop grinning. My kids are back there grinning. Let's move on. <laughs> Here's the point. If we're going to enter into the presence of the most holy God, there has to be something that the Bible calls, I'm almost scared to say it, propitiation. It's a big word. It appears once in Romans and twice in 1 John. It means someone to bear wrath. Something to remove wrath. That which takes away wrath. Our salvation hinges on propitiation because who we really are inside, in spite of our fine speech, deserves the wrath of God. Again, uh, Our salvation hinges on it, but we only get it if we give up on ourselves. God in Christ has purified the lips made unclean by our unholiness from within. That's the message. Well, the fourth fourth component here is, uh, is the thing that makes the end sort of the beginning and makes worship, spiritual worship that is, eternal. The question, will we go on his behalf? Jesus answered, asked it a little differently. Will we assume the cross of discipleship? Will we put our hand to the plow and not look back? Will we take upon ourselves the easy yoke of Jesus? Now, now people come here and say, well, okay, here, here's the deal. I came here to worship. I didn't come here to get a job. My life's complicated enough. I don't need something else to do. In fact, I've heard people say that. Say, you know, I'd get involved in church, but it just takes up too much of your time. And it can be very consuming of your time. You know. And they say, well, this is, this is, you know, I want a church where they're not always pestering you to do something. Here at Windsor Road, every time you turn up, somebody's saying they need help. Just had that up to here. Boy, that makes me mad. Well, you know what? Here's the truth. There's uh, not a job being offered here by God. This is not a job being offered. This is a special privilege being offered. You understand? The special privilege we have is to wake up to the fact that we can actually be in the service of the living God. What more do you want from your life? That's it. Um, I don't get too far afield here, but uh, sometimes when people come to the end of this earthly pilgrimage and they're trying to take stock of their life and come up with a reason for why they were here, it's, it's been my experience that they're not always able to figure that out. They just didn't spend their time, let's say, judiciously. Uh, we have a gift from God. It's the, t- it's the time, the days of our lives. 
And, uh, you know, how, how are we going to use them? See, I hate to pass up on an opportunity to serve. I really do. I, I hate it when I can do something, and for some reason or other, I, I can't go do it. Now, that doesn't mean I feel obligated for everything that comes up. Uh, most of the jobs that come up around here, I'm really not qualified. They're, they're really just not for me, you know. But some things I can do, and, and that's, that's what I want to do. I want to do them because that's worship. And that's not any more clear than uh, what Paul says in Romans 12.1. I therefore urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, well, there's a lot of qualifying phrases here. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living and sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because, get that last phrase, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is what makes worship eternal. You serve and you worship. You worship by serving. Well, sometimes um, people come through my Sunday school. By the way, you're all invited. We're starting a new new class next, uh, we're in September on Thessal. I think it's I think it's Thessalonians. <laughs> I'm going to learn to say it before then. <laughs> I can say it at home. It's in front of the group where it gets hard. Uh, <laughs> it's at 9.20. The time in the bulletin has been corrected. Um, Katie has actually performed a miracle. I've tried for 10 years to get the correct time in. And, and part of my recompense for being here today is that she corrected that. And the other is $500. But <laughs> I'm not. I'm not holding my breath. Bolting House's checks are kind of... <laughs> People come through my class and they ask me uh, questions about the church. And uh, uh, they tell me they're shopping. They're shopping. Now, I don't know. Some of you here may be shopping for a church. And I don't want you to take that I'm totally negative to the idea. It's the criteria you're using I may be negative towards. People tell me why they left the old church or why they're unhappy where they are. And, and sometimes they're valid reasons, but uh, maybe a lot of time not so much. But anyway, uh, a lot of times I, I, I conclude right away that we're probably never going to see them again. That we're not going to make the cut because of what they want. And it's not what we want to give. So... Uh, I always try to work in a little advice, though. I, I, the thing I'm best at at my age is giving advice. <laughs> and it's, it's not that I've been, uh, I, it's not that I've been to, uh, you know, in, incredibly successful in getting people to follow it, but uh, I am fond of giving it. And uh, I, I tell these people that, uh, that, that as they travel about or do whatever they're doing to find a church, that, that uh, if, if, there's a, if there's something they need to, to do, it's to be on the lookout for a need that they can fill. When you find a job that needs to be done and you can do it, it's my belief that you're not very far from where God wants you to be. Well... <clears throat> Let's take stock. I've got to end this somehow or other. Uh, what have we learned about spiritual worship here so far? Beginning with a face-to-face with the Lord of hosts, 
conviction of personal unholiness, um, proceeding through reconciliation, and uh, then, then ending with a call to service that's really just makes it the beginning. Understand, Isaiah didn't find spiritual worship in the temple that day. Um, it wasn't there waiting for him. It wasn't, uh, he, uh, he went to the temple for the express purpose of doing it. Understand? He went there to do spiritual worship. And hence it happened because that was his intent. Now, what about us here in Windsor Road? See, every Sunday, I guess every Friday now also, uh, we got, you know, people up here on the stage, and it doesn't matter how good Katie is or the, the, how well the musicians have tuned their instruments or, or, or even whether Randy is really on, you know. We, you know, we can't do the worship up here. See, worship is what you bring to us. You understand what I'm saying? You have to bring the worship into the assembly. In fact, what, what, what we really are, what we really are, we are an assembly for a corporate expression of what the Holy Spirit has placed inside us. That's what spiritual worship is. That's definitions not, not to too difficult. See, we have, see, we have something. We have a Christ-given option to worship God in the way that he wants to be approached, and Jesus says it's in spirit and in truth. 